Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Tuesday, July 26. Thanks for making time for us today. As we say often, because we mean it, your time is absolutely, without a doubt, the most valuable thing you can give us. And we sure appreciate it. Uh, Unless you want to give us a million dollars, we would also accept that. Also very valuable. We would accept that, too. That's that's John Hicks behind the control flying this plane this morning. How are you feeling, pal? I'm doing great. And whether you're listening live or later. It's going to be a jam-packed show We try today. to come up with all the catchphrases. We try to come up with, uh, yeah, no, but it's true. We, we have a, a live audience that joins us. I'm looking forward to the conversation. They keep us on our toes, and, and that's your opportunity, whether you're streaming us live on YouTube or maybe you're listening uh, live on the Mixler audio app, your way to have some feedback into how the shows unfold. You want to ask a question of a guest that's joining us, so you want to contribute to the dissection of an interview or a conversation. Then, of course, you can be like Heather or Ray Elisa or MJ, who wrote into the show after the fact yesterday. I printed off these three emails in particular, uh, chiming in on some of the subject matter from what was a pretty big Monday show. We recognized and, and, and stated it was a bit of a heavy show because that's what's going on right now. And we're talking about residential schools and the Pope's apology. We're talking about misogyny and sexual assault, allegedly, in hockey. We're talking about all these types of things that are real-life issues cancer diagnoses we're going to get into that again today and so we recognize there's some heavy lifting and we sure appreciate you joining us there are silver linings there are happy stories too today the leading edge is going to feature a relative of mine as a matter of fact john but i did not submit this myself the amazing team at leading edge physiotherapy handles the editorial content leading edge on tuesdays is their way of sharing with us what's inspiring them what's catching their attention what what's uh the the innovation that's really stopping them in their tracks and i couldn't help but notice the name nelson jesperson on this week's submission so we're going to take you out to nelson's farm tuxedo farms and we're going to show you how he is on the leading edge a little bit later on today oh i didn't know tuxedos grow yeah. yeah, yeah. well, you start them with just a tiny little thread, <laughs> yeah. and if they get the right amount of water and the right yeah. amount of sunlight, the next thing, you and, the, and then you can either sort of pluck them early for, like, spring red mm. carpet season, but if you can really let them grow into the late autumn, we're talking Oscars. then you'll get yourself a three-piece, <laughs> right? Then yeah. it gives, then the vest can grow in, and yeah, oh, so, so we'll take you out to Tuxedo Farms. <laughs> That's coming up a little, just a couple of absolute idiots. Uh, I mean, but I say that with love. I say that with love. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun today, and then, of course, we're going to hit the serious stuff, too, and that includes, in just a moment, Danny Parody's going to join us, a Western correspondent for APTN. She was there yesterday at Masquachi. She was there on the site of the former Ermanskin Residential School. She's coming to us live. She's giving us a few moments of her morning from Commonwealth Stadium. She will be attending the Mass today as Pope Francis continues his pilgrimage of penance across Canada. That will include, uh, call it, uh, Quebec and Alberta. Of course, Treaty 6, uh, as you saw yesterday, widely reported in international media. Max Fawcett will join us in about 15 minutes. We're going to talk about federal politics He's quite rightfully, I think, criticizing the carbon tax rebate. Max says the carbon tax, he argues in Canada's National Observer, good policy. But he says the communications around it has been a disaster. I can't help but notice that the two current leaders 
of mm. Alberta's most formidable political parties, the UCP and the NDP, Jason Kenney and Rachel Notley, both talking about the price of gas right now. Whose fault is it? Whose responsibility is it? We'll get into that with Max. And then Rianne Booker will join us. Rianne is going to make her Real Talk debut in about a half an hour from now. She's an oncology and palliative care nurse practitioner. A nurse practitioner is like an RN with more schooling and more experience. So these are these are the cream of the crop when it comes to oncology and palliative care nursing, cancer, and end-of-life care. She's seen it all. She was perturbed, to say the least, by UCP leadership candidate Danielle Smith's comments about cancer, in particular the first three stages of it and whose control it's in. And Danielle didn't use the word fault, but the takeaway from this, if you're paying any attention to chatter online, is what people are feeling about Danielle's comments. In other words, is it my fault I have this? Was it my husband's fault he had that? Was it whose fault that it wasn't detected in stages one, two, or three? So Rianne's going to join us in about a half an hour from now. All part of this tradition of continuing conversations on Real Talk that's how we roll. Danny Parody, in just a second, I wanted to remind you that this show happens because we have the support of sponsors like Kubi Energy. We were telling you yesterday, reminding you about this federal program that's available. Ottawa's made a $40,000 interest-free loan available for homeowners looking to install solar. You can learn more at the blog at kubienergy.ca. Keep in mind, it's an interest-free loan in addition to a $5,000 rebate from the federal government. And there's an added incentive if you happen to live in our home city of Edmonton too. Kubi has all of the details. You can find them online at kubienergy.ca or of course, you can make contact with them there and ask them your specific questions. Get an idea of what sort of cost you'd be looking at. I can almost guarantee it's gonna be lower than you think. Now, once you've got your solar panels set up this time of year, they're probably gonna be giving you more juice than you need. So you want to be able to sell it back, right? Park Power's there for you, and they guarantee they're going to pay you more than the big guys will. In some circumstances, I've seen the numbers crunched up to four times what the big power providers will pay you for the power you don't need. You can see the details on their website, parkpower.ca. Don't forget, they're also in the natural gas and internet game. If you bundle all three services, you'll save more on admin fees and the savings continue, John, with the promo code 2022-REALTALK. You use that at sign up. When you're signing up online, taking your business over there, they'll knock $70 off your first bill. The promo code 2022-REALTALK at parkpower.ca. Can you show me that Friesen Brothers photo? I was at a, a friend's barbecue over the weekend. Farn and Bonnie, congratulations to the two of them. Newlyweds and recipients of a brand new barbecue. <laughs> they wanted to say thank you to their friends. And so we had a barbecue assembly party. And then Bonnie rolled out an incredible salad. Farn rolled out the burgers and everybody started talking about the buns. Now, I had not seen the bag the buns came in, John, but I suspected, I suspected I knew where they were from. <laughs> and that's when Farn divulged they were indeed the sourdough potato rolls from Friesen Brothers. He gave me a quick wink across the patio. I said, atta boy, atta fella. I threw him a cold one back for my thanks. We recommend whatever it is you're throwing on your grill that you wrap it with the sourdough potato rolls from the amazing bakers at Friesen Brothers in 16 Alberta communities for more than 65 years. Friesen Brothers has been Alberta grown and Alberta owned. 
Obviously, an extremely emotional, a very powerful day yesterday as Pope Francis attended the site of the former Ermanskin Residential School. Nations represented in the Masquachi communities coming forward, chiefs, survivors, and others, including the Prime Minister, the Governor General, the Mayor of Edmonton, and many other dignitaries, to hear the Pope apologize for the church's role in residential schools. Danny Parody is covering this story. She's a Métis Edmontonian and a Western correspondent for APTN. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can see for yourself. She's joining us live from Commonwealth Stadium on this Tuesday where Mass is set to take place. Danny, thanks for making time for us. What are you seeing yeah. right now? Yeah, um, good morning, Ryan. So as you can see behind me, the stadium is just filling up right now. Uh, not fully at capacity. We just had um, an Inuit woman sing O Canada in Inuktitut and then followed by some traditional uh, Inuit throat singing. So I know that, I mean, millions of people will be paying attention to this mass. It's expected that tens of thousands are going to attend. And of course, that'll be part of the story of, of this journey. You were there yesterday at Masquachis. In your own words, in your own experience, can you tell us what it was like? Yeah, um, coming into the stadium or coming into the arbor, um, there was not quite as many people as as we'd heard uh, or expected. Uh, but I have heard that there was somewhere in the neighborhood of two thousand uh, survivors uh, who were or or thrivers, as some of them preferred to identify as, who were suspect uh, supposed to be in attendance after. So we went around in the crowd. Uh, we got off the bus, the media, and and we had a chance to kind of go around it and talk to people. And I talked to quite a few survivors and there was a, a really a variety of, of emotions and stories, I would say. Um, some people were very excited to hear the Pope apologize. Some people were just thrilled that the Pope was in their community. Other people were not really there yet with an apology, with the apology. They were feeling a lot of trepidation. You could see some troubled faces. Uh, there was a lot of tears. But there was also a lot of community care, which was beautiful. People were walking around uh, with sweetgrass or sage for smudging. They were passing out Kleenex. They were making sure elders were looked after. Lots of hugging and checking in with elders, which is always a beautiful thing to see. Mm, yeah, yeah, it was it was a very emotional event. As as a non-indigenous person, uh, let me state the obvious to say what what was most powerful, or at least one of the most powerful elements, was to see this First Nations culture uh, being celebrated and being exhibited. And one of the commentators I heard say, "This is the culture that the schools tried to kill." And I thought that that was so important. Uh, another powerful moment, and I'm curious for, for how it resonated with you, this red sash uh, made its way, uh, carried by dozens of people through the crowd in attendance there. This sash, uh, it's obviously a tragic and troubling representation of this legacy of these schools, but more than 4,000 names on it. These were students that attended residential schools that either passed away or did not return home. Uh, I would imagine indigenous or non-indigenous, that must have been a moment, you probably saw it firsthand, that really made an impact on everybody. Yeah, that was uh, right around the times of the, oh, sorry, I'll turn this back. Right around the times of the grand entry, um, they came out with the honor roll, which has about over 4,100 names on it. Uh, in that clip, you, you didn't really see the full, yeah, you, the full, um, breadth of the of the role but there was a drone which actually showed footage from above the arbor mm. so you could see this you know bright red ribbon cutting through the crowd which was 
a very intense visual of, of those who never returned home from residential schools. And it definitely got responses. There were the volunteers that were holding it were very emotional. Um, many of them spoke about their own family members, some of them were on the list or um, family members who've experienced some kind of uh, legacy of, of abuse or, or the survivors, the intergenerational survivors as well. So it was it was a striking issue. I, I feel like the, the one moment that will stick with everybody is the national anthem, O Canada, being sung in Cree and a message after the anthem. And I want to get your thought on that in just a moment, Danny. But for those that may not have seen it, for those that may not have witnessed it live, here's here's a, a portion of what we're talking about. This is powerful stuff. Danny, I don't know about you, but I have chills right now uh, watching that, and I've watched it 20 times. Uh, your insights there? Yeah, yeah the same. Um, now, when I was there, well, the press were actually towards the back, so I didn't get to see it quite as well uh, until I got it back into the uh, event center downtown where I watched it with some of my colleagues and at that time we didn't know fully uh, what was said but there was a press conference with the uh, the Treaty 6 chiefs later in the afternoon um, and I, I believe it was Chief, it might have been Chief Vernon, uh, it, who were describing the way that um, the woman was trying to to advocate for those who never made it home. So even in the midst of this this apology, which many uh, Indigenous community members were very excited to accept, there's also always this this pall hanging over us of these lost children. And I think that she really reminded us of this um, in, in a way that no dignitaries would have spoken to the Pope. Um, much like the visual of the of the honor roll, uh, her voice and, and the way that she lent herself to this occasion will really stick in everyone's memory. And it wasn't planned. It was completely impromptu from my understanding. Like the entire anthem was impromptu? Yes. Yeah, wow. She wasn't on the schedule to the singing. Wow. I wondered about that because it almost appeared as though, yeah, the, the event was sort of uh, the wheels were in motion for a change almost in venue, it appeared, or some sort of a change in program. And then there she was, tears streaming down her face. You could feel feel it you could feel the power it felt like she was channeling it and speaking for thousands of people i'll never forget it. i just thought that was unbelievable uh, danny everyone will have this address from the pope or the, this apology resonate in their own way uh, i was of course watching national news coverage i was following you on social media uh, there has been some criticism number one that the pope did not speak directly to sexual abuse uh, the pope did not apologize specifically on behalf of the church, which I know a lot of people wanted to hear. And then there was the moment where Chief Wilton Littlechild presented 
pontifex with the traditional headdress. And I've seen mixed feelings on this. I wanted to show just a few credible voices of indigenous people that had something to say about it. Not everybody agrees on it. Uh, Dr. James McCocus, who we've had on the show before, said this is wrong. Giving a headdress to the leader of an institution that enacted genocide on our peoples is wrong. He says, I have to say this is the actions of the, the person who organized this may confuse others and cause further harm. Uh, this was another interesting point uh, from Emily Riddle, who says, I don't know how I feel about the Pope receiving a headdress, but you have to know that gifting uh, isn't just about the recipient uh, in their culture. She says, in our culture, it's about the person giving the gift, wanting to open the mind of the person receiving it. It places two people in relationship, which I think is really interesting, profound. And lawyer Anita Cardinal, a good friend of this show, says nobody needed to see the Pope in a sacred headdress ever. No one. She says it will haunt most of us for the rest of our lives like we needed any more trauma. You were there as it happened. What did you witness? What's your takeaway? Yeah, um, as I mentioned, so the press were towards the back of the arbor from where the Holy Father was. Uh, so at that point, Wilton Littlechild was speaking to the Pope and uh, was in front of him. So I didn't actually see until Wilton stepped, until uh, Dr. Littlechild stepped back uh, where I then saw the Pope uh, wearing a headdress. And there were honestly some people who nearly fell out of their chair. It was, it was a very surprising experience. Um, I think Emily Riddle's tweet uh, about, the, about the Nina Hawk protocol is so important to understand the context here. So the, the gift, giving a gift is also a responsibility. This denotes that, um, that the Pope is now seen as a leader in the community and a leader has a responsibility to his people to make sure that they're treated properly and to make sure that he uh, follows through on his commitment. So as much as it was a very meaningful gift, it was also putting on a responsibility on the Pope. Mm. I have so much respect for Dr. Littlechild that, oh, I mean, to me, um, even if this is something that I, I may, like, I, I don't know if I would have chose to give him a, a headdress, like knowing how others may feel about it. But if Dr. Littlechild thinks it's okay, I, I just have to. I mean, he's carried survivor stories for decades. Daddy, uh, like and, and he, Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to step on your toe. I should, that was that was premature. I, 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 I just agree in the sense of like, and again, I'm I'm sort of trying to know my role in these conversations. But if I can just make the observation that the the Pope is here in Canada because I mean because of many people and the advocacy of many people. We talked to Chief Tony Alexis who who invited the Pope back in 2016 when he presented him with letters, etc. But Doctor Littlechild is the one essentially that has driven this, right? A, a, a former Grand Chief, Confederacy Treaty 6, former member of Parliament, residential school survivor, huge involvement with the Truth and Reconciliation Movement in Canada, huge involvement internationally. I mean, this guy uh, is, uh, I, I don't know what to say about it. I think my loss for words hopefully says it all and the amount of respect I have for him. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's somebody who I have a deep respect for as well. So, um if he thinks it's okay, then I guess I have to. Mm. Danny, I know you've got so much on your plate today. Uh, it's going to be. Have you ever? Have you ever covered anything? I mean, you've been a journalist for what, like twenty years? Have you ever? Have you ever covered anything? Years. Uh, Fifteen, maybe. <laughs> maybe I'm older. Maybe I'm older. Uh, but have you? Have you ever? Have you ever covered anything like this? I mean, is is this has got to be unique for you? Yeah, this is this is a really big story for me. So I, I certainly haven't covered anything of this magnitude before. So uh, it, it's quite a thrilling uh, although a bit of an exhausting day so we we wake up usually before uh, five o'clock 
these days to get to the event stadium and then are, are bussed around um, for the day. And then, you, you know, you find yourself in all sorts of conditions, looking for power, uh, plugging in it wherever you can to make sure you have enough juice to get through the rest of your day. Um, at the same time, sometimes when you're witnessing these sorts of um, these occasions, and I've noticed this, uh, you know, covering other other marches or uh, or um, emotional events, that you, you kind of put your own experiences on the back burner in order to get through the day. It's not something that's necessarily at the front of mind, but obviously given the subject and being that I'm Métis, I, I can't completely separate uh, myself from what I'm seeing. And yeah. so there are moments that really... Uh, that really hit um, hard, and and so in the middle of all of that, uh, I I'm really reminding myself that the most important people here are the survivors, uh, and that they're the people who the Pope are, is here to visit, and they're the people whose experiences we really have to center. I'm still seeing a lot of conversations on money, on traffic, on you know um, even other nations who are maybe not following the same protocols who are kind of confused about the, the gifting or or what's going on here but i would say you know the people in the room are the people that this meeting is for and um also as the pope said the other day in his apology uh, all of the first nations across the land that we call canada so this is just the beginning that's what i'm hearing and i really wanted to make sure to cover that um the, the elders, the knowledge keepers, the chiefs, and the participants that I spoke with have all said that this apology won't mean anything without action. And by action, um, they often mean turn over the records that, that we've been looking for so we can find uh, the graves of children who never came home. Make sure that the oblates uh, are turning over their records so that we can see you know, what, what happened, so we can fully come to understand um, what the what sort of abuse happened? What's documented? What do we know? And that's still something. Um, I ended the uh, press conference yesterday asking the chiefs if they wanted to see a criminal conviction. And uh, George Desjardins talked about you know these these schools are crime scenes in his opinion. There are children who have passed away. We don't know what happened to them, and there has never been anybody held accountable. And that's not something I think. I mean, this is a day I understand for forgiveness and for for penance, but at the same time, the Pope has announced that he is going to be launching an investigation. We're hoping to hear more details on that today. And, and I do hope that we come to see some accountability because I think that is an important step in the healing process. Mm. You know, uh, the people who've um, committed crimes against these children have walked free for decades and and it, it it's left this trauma uh, that's affected generations of people and really something has to be done about that. Danny Paradia, Métis Edmontonian, Western correspondent for APTN and a longtime journalist, maybe not 20 years, but a longtime journalist. We so value your time, your availability on a really important morning for you, Danny. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, you bet. Uh, I've got so much respect for Danny and, and her storytelling. And, uh, of course, you can follow her on Twitter at Danny Paradis. If you follow us at Real Talk RJ, we let you know the handles of, of who's going to be coming up on the show. Obviously, we want to let Danny get back to what she's doing. There's so much more we could talk about with regards to the next steps. You heard Grand Chief George Arcan Jr. on this show last week saying, yeah, this apology is a good first step 
He says, if the church wants to walk forward with us, and we talked what those steps might look like, you can check out our interview archives for that. I know many people wanted to hear more talk about the doctrine of discovery that essentially sort of justified the colonialism, the idea, the concept, the carrying out of residential schools. A lot of people are hashtagging land back in conversations about this yesterday. We see that, and that'll continue to shape our conversations moving forward. Wanted to let you know what we have coming up a little bit later on in the week. Edmonton City Councilor Aaron Paquette was in attendance yesterday at Masquachis. He's there today at Commonwealth Stadium. He's got a very unique perspective, a celebrated indigenous artist turned politician. Uh, we'll get Councillor Paquette's take on all this a little bit later on this week. And our good friend, journalist Brandy Morin, will be joining us again before the week's out to share her perspective. She was speaking to uh, federal minister, uh, indigenous affairs, Mark Miller, yesterday, asked him a very pointed question about that legal accountability. Uh, talking about extraditing those that could face charges. There's a, a 90-year-old or a priest, in, you know, at least a former priest in his 90s uh, right now in France. Uh, Brandy, if you follow her on Twitter, had a, got a remarkable clip out of the federal minister yesterday saying, if I could march into France and grab that guy by the scruff of the neck, I would. That's a federal minister. Said that about someone in France, but then he went to talk about extradition, how it works, says, unfortunately, it's likely not going to happen. These are a lot of the stories uh, that we're aiming to cover. We'll turn the page in just a moment when Max Fawcett joins us. We'll turn our attention to federal politics. If, if Max and I know anything about how our conversations go, we'll likely talk uh, some provincial politics as well. Before we do, let me remind you that Apex Automation right now is looking for the most talented, motivated, skilled engineers in the country. If you sound like, hey, you're going, this, this could be a good fit for me. I like the cut of their jib. I like the fact that they recognize that it's people that make things happen. People that make an impact. People that can guarantee successful partnerships in industry. And you want to check out apexautomation.ca today. You want to achieve great things. You want to reach your potential. You want to help your clients become more efficient, more profitable. Why not work for Apex? I mean, never mind the flexible hours and the professional development opportunities and a great corporate culture that they're really proud of. ApexAutomation.ca could be your first step toward a new career or the next step in your career at Apex Automation. At Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, they want to remind you that, yeah, they've got the best selection in the province when it comes to Jeep, Ram, trucks, and the full Dodge lineup. They can share their inventory between the two dealerships co-owned by the same group. But you can also shop online, not just the new lineups, but also their pre-owned selections, including the Jeeps that everyone's buzzing about right now, that Wrangler lineup. You know the Grand Cherokee as well, one of the most uh, celebrated SUVs in North American history. Why? Because of its fuel efficiency, reliability, and affordability. That's the reputation the Jeep lineup has forged. You can learn more today by shopping them online, stalbertdodge.com, sherwooddodge.com, or under the sponsors tab on our website. And Eden Landscaping wants you to know that just because you've waited until the end of July to get in touch with them, it doesn't mean that your project has to wait till next year. Depending on the project, they can get their teams mobilized ASAP to make sure that the next big rainstorm doesn't flood your basement again. Or your friend's or your next door neighbor's property doesn't collapse into yours because that retaining wall desperately needs to be repaired. Whatever the job, they've got the talent to pull it off, bringing your outdoor space to life. You can find Eden Landscaping, a custom landscape builder online at landscapeedmonton.ca. 
Our next guest is the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer and a good friend of this show, Max Fawcett. It feels like it's been a while since you've been here. Thanks for making time for us this morning. It's good to see your face. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ryan. It's uh, Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, it has. Uh, before we get into what we want to talk about, the carbon tax, federal politics, the price of gas, and the politics around that, uh, just your reactions as, as a Canadian, as a human being to what you're seeing yesterday from Pope Francis, the apology, and what you're expecting to see at the Mass today at Commonwealth Stadium. It's easily the top story in the country. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, you know, I, as a as a settler, I sort of sit back and, and listen to people like Danny parody on, on issues like this. And um, I think that the apology is long overdue and the apology is, is also just, you know, the beginning uh, of what is, I think, a long process here to come. Uh, but it, it's good to see it happening. Uh, and hopefully, you know, uh, people find the healing that they need and, and we can kind of continue down this road of reconciliation. Yeah. The prime minister in attendance there yesterday, right? Honorable Justin Trudeau and, and, uh, his uh, photo is featured in your column that's just gone out this morning, uh, at nationalobserver.com. You're the lead columnist for Canada's national observer baffled by the carbon tax rebate. You ask it's not your fault. Now, you've argued, you do argue that the carbon tax is good policy. Uh, so how does this come about? Take us into this piece. Sure. So this is this has been sticking in my craw for a long time. Uh, you know, I worked in the Alberta Climate Change Office for years, and, and we sort of dealt with similar problems around how do we actually communicate the existence and benefit of the rebate to the people getting it. Um, and it's disappointing when I watch the federal uh rebate get rolled out, they didn't really seem to learn many lessons from Alberta. So it began as an income tax deduction called the climate action incentive. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, I've been, obviously I'm on Twitter a lot and been arguing about this for years and people don't know it exists. They, you know, they're like, Hey, I live in Alberta. Or I live in Ontario. I've never gotten a rebate. And of course they have, but they either didn't know uh, that they had taken the deduction or their accountant didn't tell them, didn't, you know, sort of really single it out and say, hey, you got this money back from the feds for, for the carbon tax. So belatedly, the federal government decided to address that and they, they've uh, started paying the rebates through direct deposit. But it's not much better because it, you know, it only comes to some Canadians because, of course, if you live in a province that already had a carbon tax, you don't get the federal rebate. And in the provinces where you do, it, it comes under a bunch of different, very sort of anonymous, confusing, bland headings like Fed credit or, uh, you know, carbon uh, climate action incentive credit. Like it, it needed to say carbon tax rebate, right? That, that it needs to be that simple. And this has sort of been the problem with, with the carbon tax all along is that on the one side, you have good policy paired with very bad communications. And then on the other side, the, you know, the, the people who oppose it, kind of bad policy, you know, opposing the carbon tax, you know, economists pretty much agree, agree it, it, it is a dumb idea. This is the, the lowest cost way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but very effective communications. You know, they have hammered this thing from day one in clear terms that Canadians understand, you know, this is raising the cost of your home heating. This is raising the cost of living. You know, they've really kind of tied it to inflation now. Uh, you know, we see gas prices rising and, and conservatives kind of blaming it all on the carbon tax, even though we know that's not what's driving it. And it's, it just feels like the feds are losing the war here. Um, and, and to some degree, as I say in the column, I think it may already be lost. Um, and progressives who want to implement good policy need to learn from this. They need to understand 
that telling your story and communicating your ideas is just as important as coming up with them in the first place. Isn't it more important? <laughs> we see so many programs, incentives, platforms with potential blow up in politicians' faces because they're poorly communicated. And I feel like I can think of five or ten examples off the top of my head. I don't want to go on the record and say that I think the comms around policy are more important than the policy itself, but they're incredibly important. Members of the public have limited attention span. It's why you write your columns. It's why we do this show. It's why Sapri and I do seriously every Wednesday to cut through the noise, we say, because if you don't understand it and you're listening to what your buddies say about it when they don't understand it, then it's doomed. A hundred percent. And, you know, I, when I worked in government, one of the frustrating things that uh, that I dealt with as a communicator is that we are kind of the last stop on the train, right? The the ideas get developed, they get put through the, the policy machine, and then they take it to the communicators and say, okay, sell this for us, right? Already having decided on language, already having decided on mechanisms around how it's paid out, and it, it's really hard, right? Um, and I think this is sort of endemic to government, that communicators are not involved in the strategic development stage of policy and they need to be because if you you know if you can't explain something simply to people and other people can misinform them or confuse them about it the policy is not going to be durable it's not going to uh stick around for the long haul and that's what we needed and what we need was something like the carbon tax so you know i i've joked with a lot of people that what they should have done is sent checks to everyone right maybe giant novelty checks you know like Yes, that would be inefficient. Yes, that would be more expensive, but people would get the message that, oh, I'm getting money for the carbon tax. It's in my hot little hands here. I'll take it to the bank. I'll, pay, I'll buy something fun with it. You know, Ralph Klein understood this with Ralph Bucks. They didn't do direct deposit. Now, granted, the technology was a little uh, new at the time, but you know, you got actual checks. And I, I think they should have done actual checks this time. Yes, they would have gotten criticized. You know, you're wasting paper. Why, you know, you say you care about the climate and you're, you know, doing X, Y, Z. Who cares? What matters is you need to sell your message to the public. And when it comes to the carbon tax, the government just hasn't done a good job of that. Do we ultimately need to thank big oil and gas for saving the planet? Like I look around anecdotally and, and I'm not sure any of my friends cut their consumption, cut their travel, cut their fuel use based on the carbon tax. I didn't see anybody dropping the temperature in their home two degrees and wearing sweaters because of the carbon tax. But I do see a whole bunch of people that aren't driving, that aren't road tripping, that aren't pulling their trailers right now because we're getting gouged at the pumps. I don't think it has anything to do with the carbon tax. Maybe it does to a certain degree. Obviously, all the line items pile up for the end price. But when it comes to what we're paying for fuel, it's not all the carbon tax. And there seems to be some evidence I mean, at least that's what Alberta's premier right now is arguing. It's what a lot of politicians are arguing, that we're getting gouged. They want the federal government to do something about it. Maybe we should thank the big gas companies. I don't know. I, I mean, look, that is what's, what is going to get people to reduce their consumption is high prices. And this is the uncomfortable truth about uh, you know climate policy. And it's, I think, an area where, again, progressives have kind of dropped the ball. You know, it. If you need high prices to change behavior, then you need to pair that with rebates that people see and understand uh, as part of the story. And I, you know, I still run into people all the time who are saying, "I don't understand why we get a rebate with the carbon tax if it's supposed to change our behavior." Uh, you know, the reason is it 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 is actually like it's it's changing your behavior on steroids that you you get to you know uh, personally benefit from your your choice of 
you know, turning the thermostat down or not driving as far as opposed to just it being pure pain. Um, but, you know, conservatives are very, very skilled at, at messaging around this that, you know, all of the increase this summer is because of the carbon tax, it's 11 cents total and you get it back. Um, you know, it, like you say, it's, it's oil and gas dynamics, you know, global supply chains, uh, Russia, you name it, it's complicated. And this is the challenge is that, you know, complicated policies like the carbon tax uh, are not easily communicated in simple messages, but that is the thing you have to find as a communicator. And that's the, that's the thing that the opponents have beaten it over the head with. Carbon taxes raise your cost of living, end of story. And even if that's not necessarily true, people are believing it. Alberta's premier, uh, for now, Jason Kenney, says he wants Ottawa, he wants Justin Trudeau, the federal government, to the Competition Bureau, is, to be accurate. Uh, he wants them to probe what he says is potential price fixing when it comes to what Canadians are, are, are paying at the pumps. Uh, what's your reaction to all of this? What's your take on all of this? As Rachel Notley was down in Gasoline Alley yesterday, I think it was yesterday on her Instagram, posting about the price of gas, too. Uh, the politicians know what people are talking about right now. They know what's going to resonate with people. But whose problem is this, aside from us consumers? Yeah, I mean, gas gas prices are, uh, you know, life and life and death for politicians. You see this in the United States with, you know, Donald Trump desperately trying to get prices to go down. And now Biden's probably going to lose the midterms because gas prices are so high there. You know, with respect to Kenny and his his, you know, uh, request for Ottawa to bail him out of a of a situation that he created for himself. I mean, it's it's so on brand for the guy, right? Uh, to to start fires and then, you know, uh, criticize the fire department for spending too much money, and then you know, then he needs the fire department to come and save his butt. Uh, even by, the, you know, the standard of lame duck politicians, he he's one of the lamest ducks I've ever seen right now. You know, he's just sort of sad tweeting through the last few months of his time in office, and. You know, th this speaks to the failure of a lot of his policies. He cut taxes for corporations, assuming that they would come and, and drill more wells, spend more money here. And instead, they've just put it in their pockets and they're, and they're about to announce uh, record profits for, for the second quarter of this year. You know, he, he cut the gas tax, thinking that all the savings would get passed on to Albertans. And sure enough, uh, you know, it took a few months, but, but the, the oil and gas companies, the, the gas retailers, have found ways to put some of that in their pockets. So, you know, I I think that this is just of a piece for a guy who believes a story about the way the world works that has repeatedly shown itself to be false under his leadership. Um, you know, will it have any impact on the post-Kenny era? I doubt it. Um, you know, I think we're going to get a refresh in October when whoever the new leader of the UCP is uh, is announced and. And I think the NDP is is smart to kind of try to wrap their heads or hands around the inflation story right now, um, because, you know, there are all sorts of inflation in our lives that are not the responsibility of the federal government or international trade or COVID. It's very specifically UCP policy, you know, whether it's the, the lifting of the insurance premium cap, um, you know, school busing fees. Uh, you know, the getting rid of the electricity rate cap, you name it. There's a lot of ways that our bills are higher that are directly attributable to provincial policy. And the, the NDP kind of needs to keep hammering that. Anytime that car insurance comes up in conversation on this show, we get about 15 emails from people. Some people actually scan and send what they're paying. They say, look what I was paying last year. Look what I'm paying this year. I didn't have any tickets. I didn't have any accidents. Somebody help me understand this. I mean, that's, that's the stuff that resonates. It's, it's anecdotal, but it's still powerful stuff. 
Before we thank you for your time, Max, you touched on the UCP leadership race. Whoever wins it obviously becomes the premier uh, under no obligation to call an election. Danielle Smith was on this show a short time ago, said that she would not call a snap election if she won. Uh, She said that the date's been set and she would observe that date. What are you noting from the race? Who do you perceive to be the front runner? Who do you think is going to win? And what do you think are the implications? Well, I think to begin, you know, we, we probably shouldn't take much that Danielle says at her word. I don't think she told people she was going to cross the floor to, to join the PCs back in 2014. And, and she did that. So um, I don't think a snap election call is out of the question. I think it's pretty clear that she's winning the, um, you know, the, the paranoid primary, you know, between her and Brian Jean. I think there, there is clearly a, a double race going on. There's a race to see who's going to be the leader. But, the, you know, before that, there's a race to see who is going to represent the anti-vaxxers, the, the paranoids, the skeptics, the people who you know, believe in the World Economic Forum conspiracy theories. And I think she's just absolutely destroyed Brian Jean on that front. And, and you know, so her recent comments about you know, people who have cancer being basically responsible for their cancer diagnosis, like that's all of a piece. Um, she is trying to get as many of those people that are in the UCP base, that is part of that coalition that Jason Kenney built uh, under her umbrella. I think So I think that's that's done. And come September, when people go back to school, back to work, I think you will see a second race where the moderates will try to push back against you know, the, the, the coalition that she's built. I, I think Rebecca Schultz is a very important uh, person to watch. You know, I think Travis Tays weirdly tried to compete for that paranoid primary you know he said some things about vaccines that were very um wrong and silly something like um, uh, two shots enough is enough under my watch no more it was kind of like what are you talking about man like are you an are you, are you a virologist like are you what are you talking about exactly and and the thing with that you know the paranoid primary is you can't go half in right you got to be all in with the crazy oh. and and he wasn't so I think Schultz is is worth watching. You know, she is a compelling moderate candidate. She can say, look, I'm going to do a bunch of small C conservative things. I'm going to fight Justin Trudeau, but I'm not going to blame you for getting cancer. And I'm not going to turn, you know, everyone's, uh, you know, home into a potential school like Daniel Smith wants to do. And I think that'll be compelling. Um, You know, I think you're going to see and you're going to see a lot of moderates, uh, quote unquote, moderates, relative moderates coalesce around somebody because you have Leela here, you know, you have Rajan Sani, you have a lot of, a lot of votes, a lot of people signing up members who are going to have to use, you know, they have this rank balloting system. It's all going to come together in, in a, you know, sort of secret sauce kind of way, but I think she's the one to watch. Um, and, and I think she would be a very serious test for Rachel Notley, you know, there's a lot of people who, yes, yeah. I think there's a lot of people who would very much like to pretend the last few years under Kenny didn't happen and, and vote conservative again. I know and a lot she'll of give them. them permi- she'll give them permission to do that. Yeah. Uh, Dan- Daniel Smith will not. Daniel Smith will force them to make a choice between sane and crazy. Uh, and, and I think that plays better for the NDP, but it plays a lot worse for Alberta. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we need that right now. I think we, we need a, a more uh, coherent and, uh, you know, a grounded conversation about what's best for the future. Were Rebecca Schultz to win of note, it would be two Alberta premiers in a row that were from Saskatchewan. That would be kind of interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how this all goes. People have, people have talked about, you know, their personal feelings about Danielle Smith and we see a lot of it, obviously in correspondence to the show, 
Um, some people have said, um, you know, if, if Danielle wins, people are almost going to look back fondly on Jason Kenney's tenure. It kind of reminded me of when Donald Trump was president. People started looking back and saying, like, George W. wasn't actually, like, all that bad when they were comparing him to Donald Trump. I don't know. The one thing I wanted to circle back on before we thank you for your time, Max, I'm gobsmacked at the campaign. I, I, I know the team. I'm not trying to. I would say it to their faces. I will say it to their faces next time I see them. Where is Brian Jean's campaign? Like, what is going on? I, I, I don't mean to exclude him in commentary, but sometimes I respectfully forget that he's running. Like, where is he? Yeah, it's it's sort of striking that the guy who had the most time to prepare for this and, and who very clearly signaled, you know, his intentions a long time ago is basically invisible right now. Um, but, you know, to, I think, number one, that's a reflection of the fact that it's rarely the person who plunges the knife into the, the old leader who becomes the new leader. And so I think that may be his sort of, uh, you know, his his role in this race is. You know, he was he was the one who I guess ultimately got revenge for for what Kenny did to him in the first leadership race. But he opened the door for for someone even further to the right, even more willing to flirt with, you know, paranoid conspiracy theories about people's health and, and the global economy and, you know, how how they're going to rewrite the Constitution, apparently. Um, and he should have seen that his campaign team should have seen that coming. Right. If, if you're going to be the guy on the far right, you can't let someone outflank you. And, and that's what he, that's what Daniel Smith has done, I think, with remarkable success and speed. I lied to you. I, I, I made it sound like we were about to wrap. And then you had to you had to you just had to mention the idea of the Sovereignty Act. You, you had to bring it up. And I'm glad because it had you not five minutes from now, I would have been like, damn it. I should have asked him about the Sovereignty <laughs> Act. Uh, I, I, I said to Danielle's face when she was on the show that that basically legal experts, including like Howard Anglin, like Jay-Z, nobody's going to accuse him of being a lefty. Nobody's going to accuse him of of being some sort of like an NDP bootlicker. He was Jason Kenney's principal secretary, but like legal experts and not just him. Many of them have said this this idea that Alberta can assert its sovereignty uh, over federal law and essentially say thanks, but no thanks to all federal laws. And Danielle's talking about invoking it in a number of different circumstances that this would be laughed out of court and, and she insists it wouldn't be in closing uh, maybe, you know, a couple of your thoughts on this sovereignty act because it's, it is, it's doing what it's intended to do. It's tricking a bunch of people into thinking it's a great idea and it's a huge one. Nobody can figure out why no other conservative politician ever came up with this idea to fight Justin Trudeau before they've tried everything, but she's got the solution. Your take on the sovereignty act. Yeah, I mean, it's it's ludicrous. Uh, it's theater. She knows that this is going to get not only laughed out of court, but the moment that it, if it got passed as legislation, an injunction would be filed with the court in Alberta and it would probably be overturned, you know, almost immediately. I don't I don't even think it would get to having the federal government needing to intervene legally. So it's it's childish fiction um, and it's damaging to Alberta. It's damaging to its ability to attract investment, to attract people to live here, to work here, to build their businesses here. We saw this in Quebec over the course of you know 15 years, where the 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 road to sovereignty is paved with bankrupt businesses uh, and 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 people's lives kind of uh, you know it, less prosperous than they needed to be. This is all in the service of Danielle's political ambitions, and she knows exactly what she's doing. But I think the ultimate architect of this is Jason Kenney. This is Jason Kenney's mess at the end of the day, because he opened the door to this. He spent four years 
telling Albertans that they could do things that they couldn't actually do. You know, the, the equalization referendum, the fight, the fight back strategy, right? This is just a continuation of what Jason Kenney started. And he knew all along that his strategy was, was lies and, and fantasies being peddled to people. And, you know, I, I don't know where this ends. I think this ends with people being even more alienated, frustrated, um, outraged with politicians. Uh, maybe this will ultimately be what breaks the, the, the United Conservative Party back into two factions, um, which would be sort of an interesting legacy for Jason. But, you know, I, I, I really would like to see, you know, politicians who, who try to get into power this way learn a, learn a quick lesson, you know. Um, and unfortunately, Daniel's showing that this stuff still works. It mm. works in Alberta. People want to be told this fantasy, just like, you know, in, in the United States with Donald Trump. He he told them he would bring their jobs back. You know, he would make coal great again. And he didn't because he couldn't, because that was never a realistic possibility. But people, if you give them the choice between a truth that is unpleasant and a lie that is comfortable, a lot of them will take the comfortable lie. Yeah, well said. Max Fawcett is... Read by Canadians from coast to coast to coast is the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer. You can read his work at nationalobserver.com, including his fresh column this morning on the carbon tax rebate. And, of course, you can give him a follow on Twitter at Max Fawcett. Thanks for doing this, bud. Pleasure as always. Okay, we'll talk to you again soon. Uh, let's roll right into our next. I'm looking forward to this conversation, and I'm, and I'm grateful that our next guest is uh, giving us some time out of her day. The work that she does is incredibly important. Before we get to oncology nurse practitioner, Rianne Booker, let's take a look back at what prompted and what is prompting this continuing conversation about cancer detection, cancer care. Danielle Smith, everybody's talking about her. She, she's probably the lead horse in this race to be Alberta's next premier, the UCP leadership race. And she brought on a naturopath onto sort of an online availability. Remember, Danielle herself, we're former colleagues in radio, a talk show host. And so she's interviewing this naturopath. Of course, the idea of this to backsell her idea of a personal health allowance. She wants every Albertan to receive $300. A family of four would get $1,200 a year to spend however they like on their own healthcare, whatever they deem to be most important. They started talking about cancer, and that's when this happened. Absolutely. Once you've arrived and got stage four cancer and there's radiation and surgery and chemotherapy, that's an incredibly expensive intervention, really? not just for the system, but also expensive in the toll it takes on the body. But when you think about everything that built up before you got mm -hmm. to stage four and that diagnosis, that's completely within your control. And there's something that you can do about that that is different. So it prompted Rianne Booker uh, to tweet, Danielle Smith as president of the Canadian Association of Nurses in Oncology. I would love the opportunity to speak with you about cancer prevention, early detection and screening, disease-directed treatment, and palliative and support care in Alberta. Please DM me. Rianne Booker joining us now live this morning. So did she? Did Danielle Smith reach out to talk to you? Nothing yet. Nothing no. yet. Hey, thanks for making time for us this morning. Let, let me do you a proper justice with your introduction. You're an oncology and palliative care nurse practitioner, more than 20 years experience in cancer care. As mentioned, you are the president of the Canadian Association of Nurses in Oncology, and you will soon uh, be earning your PhD. You're a candidate right now at the University of Victoria in BC. You know what you're talking about, and you work, quite frankly, in some of the most difficult spaces in healthcare. Yeah, I think, you know, that was what was a little bit challenging to hear uh, with, with the messaging that came across is 
Um, and, you know, when I heard the, the message straight away, my, my immediate reaction was how Miss um, Smith's comments might be harmful and hurtful to anyone who's been affected by cancer. So you can imagine somebody who's been diagnosed and going through treatment for cancer. That's the last thing they need to hear. That's the last um, extra bit of burden that needs to be heaped on top of an already very difficult situation. Um, the message suggests that people with cancer are somehow at fault or should have done something differently to avoid getting cancer. And, and frankly, that's abhorrent. The reaction from the general public was swift and strong. Uh, we received a lot of feedback from audience members live in our chat, in emails, people tweeting at us. And it was pretty obvious that I can't say across the board. I mean, obviously, she has her supporters that will that will sort of, uh, you know, take in everything she has to put out there. But generally speaking, it really ticked people off. And I think that that's because cancer is very personal and it's pretty tough to find somebody across the country, around the world, for that matter, whose life has not been impacted by cancer. Absolutely. You know, the latest statistics uh, suggest that one in two people will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. So, um, you know, me personally, even uh, I've had many family members and friends be diagnosed and go through cancer treatment starting at the age of six when my grandma was diagnosed with lung cancer. Um, she had been uh, a longtime smoker. Um, but, you know, at the time that she began smoking, the information wasn't as readily available that smoking might be harmful. Um, so to suggest that that was her fault, I think, is is really harmful and damaging. Um, and don't get me wrong. I think, you know, prevention really should be the cornerstone of disease management. But the way that Ms. Smith presented this was overly simplistic. Um, we need systems level change in place and the onus really shouldn't be placed on the individual. Um, you know, we know about modifiable risk factors and things like that in, in terms of um, helping to prevent some types of cancers. But uh, to date, the majority of cancers, we still don't know what causes them. And, um, you know, it, it may just be um, random bad luck. You know, we, we know that things like spontaneous mutations can be happening all the time. Um, we also know that somebody could live a perfectly healthy um, lifestyle and still get cancer. We've treated elite athletes at the cancer center, people who are incredibly physically fit, whose diets are impeccable, and they still got cancer. Mm. Um, we know that not everybody who smokes gets lung cancer and not everybody who gets lung cancer has ever smoked in their life. So it's not that simple. Um, but the way that she framed it, it wasn't even a, a discussion about prevention because I, again, I don't think that prevention is something that anyone would dispute. But she's suggesting that stage one, two or three cancer, somebody is able to do something to prevent that from progressing to stage four. And if she's unlocked that mystery of, of cancer care, I think she should share that with the oncology community. Um, and it's also important to note, too, that a lot of people are, are diagnosed with advanced disease. So um, when we look at the top three most common cancers, breast, prostate cancer and lung cancer, if you look specifically at lung cancer, more than 50% of um, all new lung cancer diagnoses are diagnosed at stage four. Um, colorectal cancer as well is diagnosed, um, typically around 50% of new diagnoses are stage three or four disease. Um, very often cancer is present in somebody's body and progressing and they're not even aware of it. So to suggest that people could do something at stage one, two or three, uh, they may not even be aware they have cancer. They might be diagnosed um, at, at time of diagnosis with stage four disease. Um, by the time cancer is detectable or shows up on imaging like CT scans and things like that, that, that cancer is already billions of cells big. 
Um, and so the best chance you have at managing cancer really is early detection. Uh, and then I would su suggest a referral to a cancer center to be managed and, and treated by the experts. And we do treat people with early stage disease with, with surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. So she again was implying that those treatments are reserved for stage four disease alone. And, and that's simply inaccurate. Hmm. You talked about uh, modifiable risk factors, and I want to make sure for us for us lay people that we understand what you're talking about. Are you are you, are you talking about using sunscreen and and wearing a, a mask or hiring an expert to remediate the asbestos in your attic and stopping smoking cold turkey? Is that is that the kind of thing we're talking about? Yeah. So, you know, causation when it comes to cancer is it's really multifactorial. And again, it's not as simple as saying I'm going to do X to prevent Y, because we know um, that you could do everything in your power uh, to, to live that perfectly healthy lifestyle and may still get cancer. Um, but there are some things and research has shown that there are some some causal links between different things. So, yeah, you know, avoiding smoking if you can. Um, trying to eat a healthy diet. And, and I think when we talk about these modifiable risk factors, we need to realize that that's good on paper or in theory, um, but realistically, those things can be very challenging for some people. Um, it's exceedingly expensive to eat um, healthy uh, and buy fresh fruits and vegetables um, and things like that. So definitely the things that we're aware of um, using sunscreen and, and to Miss Smith, I would put the question, you know, what are her her thoughts and plans for climate change, because, you know, we, we do know that um, UV exposure is, is definitely a, a risk factor for certain types of cancer. Um, I would also suggest, and I do like her idea of the health spending account, um, because we know that things like stress and, and um, you know, um, attention to mental health is really important as well. Uh, a lot, many Albertans don't have access to um, mental health specialists, therapists, counselors, and things like that. Um, again, in terms of uh, early detection and screening for cancer, um, you know, this is pre-pandemic data, but approximately 15% of Albertans don't have a family doctor. So, um, you know, if somebody was to suspect that they might have cancer, what do they do? Uh, yeah, I'm one of them. Yeah. 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 And my, my doctor was younger than me and he left. He was done with the bullshit. Yeah. That's what he said to me. He left, he left uh, practice in Alberta just last year. And, uh, and it's tough to find another family doctor. And I, I'm stating the obvious here, but I feel like maybe I'm just speaking for some people that don't have their own show. Like, let me just say when you're trying to find finding a family doctor is not just as easy as going into the phone book and like who uses the phone book. But you get my point. And, and, yeah. and like finding someone uh, picking from a list. There's also that relationship and the history and the trust and the insight yeah. and and all of the things that go into what's made family medicine so important uh, and such a vital piece of that puzzle. You talked about systemic change as well, which is bigger than the individual approach to cancer prevention, detection, or treatment, right? So what are we talking about there? Well, again, you know, we can look at any healthcare budget across Canada, and we can see that the majority of spending and the, the money is really focused on acute care and hospital care. Um, very little, and, and this is this applies to cancer as well, very little is spent on health promotion and prevention. So uh, we really need systems level change to be able to, to realize that goal of prevention. Um, we need to make it easier for people to live healthy lifestyles, you know, again, making sure that that food is available and is accessible and not um, ridiculously expensive. Um, attention to, to really good um, mental health care as well is really important. Um, so there's some basics, basic things there for sure. Um, 
you know, again, re reducing exposures to, to UV and uh, some of the workplace hazards and things like that that you mentioned, asbestos and stuff, um, those can also be very important. It's interesting, isn't it, when you hear about how di how different people have reached the point of their cancer diagnosis, which is is easily, you know, one of the worst days of anyone's life. Um, but but I can think of even people in my own life. I think of my uncle Robin, who who successfully uh, beat prostate cancer. He was diagnosed in his forties, and it was only because he had his annual and because he ha had his prostate checked. There was that exam. I think based on family history, if I remember correctly, but. Like Robin's like as strong as an ox and and healthy and had no reason to suspect. That's one example of, I mean, I know millions of Canadians will fight cancer. Um, some people will, you know, something's wrong and, and, and obviously they'll get checked and, and realize that they're at a very advanced stage. And sometimes that can have a devastating impact. That can be the final chapter for them. Is it possible to say, I, I might be asking you a question that's impossible to answer, but, but, but when you note people that, 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 present to their physician or, or, or walk into a clinic or whatever with the suspicion that something's off. And maybe they even use that word. Maybe they wonder if they have cancer. Is there is there kind of like a, I mean, you could say, well, lung's going to be different than breast is going to be different than prostate is going to be different than whatever. But is there kind of a common thing or is there something, I guess what I'm asking you for is what should audience members be looking out for? What should people be paying attention to? How can people be proactive and take the responsibility wherever possible in their own health journey. Yeah, well, I think, you know, people know their bodies best. Uh, and we do very often hear those stories of people, you know, suspecting for a long time that something was up and something was wrong. So I think you need to trust that intuition and listen to your gut. Um, but there are some other things to watch for too. So, you know, if there's unexpected weight loss, so if, if you lose weight and you're not doing anything intentional to lose weight, uh, things like night sweats, um, things like uh, change in bowel or bladder habits. Um, if there's a, a mole or a spot that's bleeding or changing, um, there, you know, there's different things like that, that pe people can do. But I, I would say overall, people know their bodies. And so to trust that instinct, if something is off, um, it's better to seek care early and get checked out to just be on the safe side. Um, and again, that's where things are a bit challenging right now. If people don't have family doctors, family doctors are absolutely, absolutely integral to the whole cancer care trajectory. Um, you know, that they're responsible for conducting a lot of that, um, the cancer screening and early detection and, and they know their patients well. And so if there is some kind of change that's happening, new lumps or bumps and things like that, you know, they can really help to get those early investigations underway. Hmm. Let me ask you this in closing, you, as mentioned, you're the president of the Canadian Association of Nurses in Oncology. Uh, I would suspect that some surgeries have been delayed as a result of strain on hospitals, and that's probably impacted uh, patient care. And we hear these stories, individual stories, and then the collective statistics as well. Uh, two and a half years into COVID, all things considered, um, I'm asking you to speak for hundreds or thousands of people, but how are you and your colleagues doing? Well, I think, you know, it, it doesn't matter where you are in healthcare. I think the impact of, of the pandemic has been pervasive and really has permeated all areas of healthcare. So, you know, people are tired, people are exhausted, um, but people, you know, the, most of the people I know, especially in oncology, went into oncology because they have a desire to help people and to make, you know, a horrible experience even a tiny bit better. Uh, and that's really a privilege. And I hear from my nursing colleagues um, very often that, yeah, there, you know, there's talk about burnout and stress and things like that, but they still feel very privileged and honored to be able to provide care to people during that cancer um, trajectory and experience. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, 
I think that we know the impact of COVID in terms of delays in, in uh, diagnosis and things like screening tests and mammography and um, screening for colorectal cancer and all those things. There have been significant delays. We know, you know, more than 500,000 surgeries um, across Canada have been delayed or postponed. Uh, that's data according to Kaihai, and that was as of, I think, last August. Did you say so half a million? Yes. Half wow. A million. That's not only cancer surgeries, but a chunk of those would be cancer surgeries, sure. in, including diagnostic surgeries, as well as surgeries uh, intended to treat somebody's cancer. Um, and so, you know, we'll be catching up uh, on those for, for years to come. Um, in addition to that, there were, you know, if, if we delay the diagnosis, then it, it stands to reason that we've delayed treatment as well. Um, so we can expect to see in the years to come people being diagnosed with later stage disease um, that might make it harder to control or cure. Um, and, and, you know, there's a whole array of different um, issues that come with that. So it's not just the physical uh, side of things, but also the psychosocial impact uh, on the patient and their family as well. Rianne Booker is an oncology and palliative care nurse practitioner, a PhD candidate at the University of Victoria in BC and the president of the Canadian Association of Nurses in Oncology. We're lucky to have people like you uh, working tirelessly toward a better healthcare system. Thanks for making time for us on the show. Thanks so much. And if I could just end by saying, you know, to anybody who has cancer, please know it's not your fault. Please uh, don't shoulder that that burden, that blame, the guilt. Um, you know, we could all do whatever we could to avoid cancer and there's still a chance that we would get it anyway. So, um, and to everyone else, please seek care if, if you are worried about your health or notice a change in your health at all. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks. Rianne. Great conversation. <laughs> She's right. I mean, you see, I, I don't know why George Burns comes to mind, but I just think he's like the iconic, yeah. you know, when did you ever see George Burns without a, without cigar, a cigar in his mouth? And I think he lived yeah. till he was like 100. Or like Keith Richards. How is he still alive? Like, right. There's, there's all these anomalies that like. And then you'll hear of the marathon runner that that's never touched exactly. tobacco in their life. They haven't had chewing tobacco. They, they get like esophageal never cancer. Never had and anything fried. To, lung cancer, know, exactly. Or, or red meat. and yeah. It's a just... good buddy of mine, a good university pal, his, his, his dad uh, had a, a cardiac incident in bed, uh, died uh, in his early 50s. Mm -hmm. And I remember my pal, as we were grieving together, uh, the one thing he said to me that was, I, I don't know why, this comment just stuck with me. His dad was a runner. His dad was fit. And mm -hmm. he looked at he looked at me. His eyes are just full of tears. And he says he didn't even put butter on his bagels. Jeez. You know, that, 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 that comment just mm -hmm. stuck with me. It's like he lived such a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. And, and uh, it's not cancer. Obviously, it's a different thing. But it just goes to show, and I appreciate Rianne circling back i, I like it, when guests do that when an interview is yeah. they say let me just reiterate one more time <laughs> yeah you know it's not your well, fault that's what's important and it's not it's not an excuse to go out there and smoke and drink and live your life up and just think you know we're gonna get it anyways but like i, I liked how she said like we got to be preventative but as well like <laughs> you may get cancer anyways so it's yeah. not your fault um yeah that was a big miss by danielle yeah, well, but it's but look, I mean, you know, people will also say to to just say it directly. It also worked. Mm -hmm. It's got everybody talking. Yeah. It's got everybody mentioning the name. People will say, "Well, yeah, like you, first and foremost, you." Well, you got to challenge the stuff. You yeah. got to talk about and it. You, but it, but you wonder what the campaign team is doing here. Like, let's just throw this out here. Whether it, whether it enrages or infuriates people or oh, not, it works because there it will are get people, people out talking there who believe you know you know the government is using cancer as as a way to make money, and you know there's a cure out there, and it's being 
sequestered. It's being hidden. And mm. Brenda, and she's right. She says, slam the like button. If you appreciate the content you're hearing here on the show, this is our plug. This is our plug for Real Talk. We appreciate when you hit that like button. It amplifies our content. It helps with the algorithm, all that nerdy stuff that John and I try to focus on in our team here. We appreciate you liking and subscribing and sharing. You can subscribe to our YouTube, to our podcast. And when you're on the podcast, if, if you can rate it, that would be awesome. Wow. You know, I'm, we're like the Uber drivers. We want your five stars. Asking for a rating we don't today. ask for we don't ask for a tip, <laughs> but we want your five stars, I and we appreciate that. Today's show five stars. Thanks, John. Can I ask you? Unfortunately, a- I think you can only rate the show one time. <laughs> if we could rate the show daily, we would have thousands of five star reviews. Can I ask you though? You can ask me whatever you want. Personal. Yeah, sure. Like, when's the last time you've had you've had a check for a screening or anything? Yeah, like no, that? that's a fair question, and and I always try to be um, positive and proactive and set a good example. Yeah, you know, I was on the uh, city of Edmonton, not not officially with the city, but I was on Edmonton's Movember committee for many mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. and I made a commitment to friends and, and to family. Uh, you know, my grandfather fought prostate cancer for a lot of years. That is runs in our family. That that I would get an annual, and my buddy Laws, one so of my best pals. It. Well, I'm going to give you. I'm, I'm qualifying. I'm going to let you down at the. <laughs> end i'm gonna let you down at the Uh-oh. end but my buddy laws is always proactive because we would get it we would both get our annuals every november because that was movember it was when we would focus on prostate health and men's mental health mm-hmm. and uh, i'm not involved with that anymore uh, obviously officially i support the movement of course uh, but every november he would send me a note and say hey pal booked your annual and we would hold each other accountable there uh, I had it up until last year, and my my family doc uh, closed his practice, and uh, and I haven't yet found another family doc. And this conversation here is a good reminder I need to. So so I guess it's been about a year and a half, okay. but it's incredibly important. It's super and, important, and and, it, and, it, and it's because I mean these things, you know, there might be something that that your family doc notices and 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 for women you know you get you get like your pap and you get all the tests that you need uh for for women's health whether it's a mammogram whatever there's all i don't know too much about that stuff but but i do know that it's important and i do know for men um you can't speak for everybody but generally speaking we're lousy and i've shared this statistic on the show before i heard this uh i think it was the whatever the source was it was like the canadian medical association or something but it revealed a few years ago, and I've, I've said this before, 75% of men's annuals, mm-hmm. men's annual checkups, 75% of them are booked by women. <laughs> yeah, I believe it's that. pathetic, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's pathetic toward us. Uh, it, it goes to show that there are people go right now because I went, I think it was four years ago. Yeah. And then like a lot can this, happen in this four my years, right? annual the year after, and then COVID for two years. Yeah. So now she's like, she's booking mine right now for me. So yeah, bless her. Yeah. And Brenda says, my husband was a former smoker. He's been clean now for 17 years. Atta boy. Mm-hmm. Think of how much money he's saved. I mean, he probably saved his life, right, Brenda? But also, what's what's a pack of smokes? Like 20 bucks now, probably? I have no idea. It must if, be if you're a, a pack, of, if you're a pack a day, you're spending like, f- what, like 500, 600 bucks a month i have a friend who recently quit like, like seven grand a year who was smoking like two and a half packs a day what I, yeah i just what i couldn't believe like it lighting one off the other yeah it's like a whole world i, I just don't understand like that's, that's like the, the people that wake up and like sit up in bed in the morning and light one. Oh yeah and then they smoke when i go back to bed and then they wake up in the middle of the night and smoke one fall asleep with one in your hand fall asleep with the dart don't do that Careful. we're gonna hear from the fire chiefs if we keep talking like that in just a second we're gonna get to. Uh, oh, let me hang on. Let me just fit this in. Uh, I, I, I was. I love the live comments. Chaotic kitty cat. Nice handle. 
Chaotic Kitty Cat says, listen to your family doctor. Mine being extra cautious in 2016 is what caught my cancer. And I just celebrated five years out of treatment this year. That's amazing. What about Jill says, that's why married men live longer than single men. (laughs) Single women live longer than married women. These dudes are stressing us out. Fair enough. Married people in general, though, you have that person like, you know, looking out for you. Our annuals together and we'll keep each other in check. I'd be down. Okay. Not like together. I don't want you in the room. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, uh, your weight's up from. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm always like, I'm always like the scale. When's the last? When did you last calibrate your scale? I'm like looking at your back and pointing. What do you think of this? They're like, they're doctor, like the scale is the scale's fine, <laughs> Mister Jesperson. It's not the scale. Okay, uh, trash talk is coming up on Friday, and uh, we're seeing a resurgence in the politically themed trash talks. You can send them to us anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We always love to see the non-political trash talks too. So we're putting the call out for those. Of course, it's presented by Local Environmental Services, your full service environmental solutions partner. Look at that flashy graphic for everybody that's checking us out on YouTube. Over the years, Local Environmental has proven itself to be one of the most trustworthy names and ways waste management you can rely on local environmental because when it comes to waste collection you can't afford not to you can request a quote today on their website localenvironmental.ca they're more than just garbage and recycling they're operating across the prairie provinces right now the roll off and front load bins if you have a big project going on people just down the street from us redoing all their siding right now i'd love to see a local environmental bin in front of their house very well done they're running vacuum trucks and water hauling landfill services fencing portable toilets and more they'll customize the pickup schedule you need weekly bi-weekly monthly whatever you can check them out at localenvironmental.ca and our friends at dairy queen want to remind you that today is a perfect day to check out their summer blizzard lineup or another one of those famous Dairy Queen frozen treats. I told you I celebrated a personal best on the golf course the other day by crushing a Buster bar. We marked John's birthday recently with some dairy-free dilly bars. And of course, there's the under-discussed, I believe, the underrated and under-discussed crown jewel in the Dairy Queen freezer. This is, and so fun to say, the Treats-a Pizza. (laughs) When's the last time you had a Treats-a Pizza? Pick one up today. Maybe grab a poolside punch twisty misty slush while you're at it. I know John wants to say it, but we will not encourage you to crush vodka with your twisty misty slush. That is not a sanctioned nor endorsed position of the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. <laughs> Every Tuesday, thanks to our friends at Leading Edge Physiotherapy, we celebrate innovation. And today, well... Let's shine the spotlight on someone who happens to be a relative of mine, but I didn't choose the story. This is Nelson Jesperson. Nelson's the owner of Tuxedo Farms near Westlock, Alberta. Now, what's so innovative about their farm? Well, they've just installed five Swedish Duval robots. Yeah, that's right. This is a dairy farm. Cows that are wearing these tracking devices around their neck. They see that the information is stored about that individual cow. The computer system is really remarkable stuff. And so it milks that cow a couple times a day. And, and of course, the computer keeps track of this all. Now, once the cow chooses to walk through the automated gate, it's scanned. And one of two doors opens, depending on the information the tracker provides, either to eat food or to get in line for milking. Now, once it's there, a robot fitted with a 
small camera cleans the udder. This is an udder approach, John. And then it attaches each of their called teat cups. I've been waiting all week to read that. The whole operation is timed so that the cow is primed for milking. It's exactly 45 seconds. Now, there's incentive for the cows to follow the process because these small molasses pellets are dispensed. The cows get to have a snack while they're being milked. Now, this is all rationed, of course, because health is the top priority. Now, these robots don't just increase efficiency in production, but it also provides intel on the cow's patterns. And it's better for the animals. Now, they can be, con- they can be milked at their leisure, be fed, watered, and then lay down and relax. Before, you'd have them penned up waiting to get milk. There'd be like a hundred other cows in there. This is the future of dairy production, and it is now at farms like Tuxedo Farms in Westlock, Alberta. That's why they're on the leading edge. The leading edge is presented by Leading Edge Physiotherapy every Tuesday here on Real Talk. Life shouldn't hurt. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we expect that we're going to be speaking with the Federal Minister of Sport. Minister Senange will join us to talk about an investigation and future funding around Hockey Canada following very serious allegations from the World Junior Teams in 2003 and 2018. Later this week, we're also going to be talking to Edmonton Councillor Aaron Paquette, who's in attendance at the Mass at Commonwealth Stadium today, and journalist Brandy Morin will join us for an update on her perspective through the Papal Apology. We'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook-Shivers. Account coordinator, Lawrence Derlego. Human resources, Lena Shepard. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com. 